Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. This is just Travis, no Ryan this time. Uh, I'm alone, I'm editing the podcast you're listening to right now, and I wanted to give a quick intro to what we're doing here. Uh, Ryan and I decided it would be a good idea to perhaps compile highlights, best of clips, interesting little bits from our first episodes. And so what I've done is I've taken the first 10 episodes of the show and I've clipped out five to 10 minute clips from each one. I don't necessarily think that each is the funniest bit we did, though, you know, many of them are humorous, um, nor do I think that they're the most insightful. I hope it's kind of a blend of both. Sometimes it's a tangent, sometimes it's just a quote that I thought was excellent, and sometimes it's just an interesting conversation that we had about a work of literature. Uh, If you've never listened to the show before, um, we're the Brothers Book Club podcast. We try and record and put out an episode once per week. We try and keep them brief, about 30 minutes, though we've done longer book club episodes in the past that are deep dives. Our most recent show and what you're listening to now is a review-focused show. So our aim is to take these Little Penguin classics, that's kind of a collection of 80 pieces of world literature, and our goal or our aim is to recommend one per week or recommend one to avoid per week. You'll hear in the clips here that there are some works that we did not respond to, and don't think a 2019 reader would respond to either. Um, But I'll leave that for you to listen to and decide. We're so flattered that you're listening. If you've been listening to the episodes, thank you. Just thank you so much. It's incredible, the things we've heard from family and friends. Uh, And if you've discovered us, you know, through internet channels or through our website, thestump.com, or any other means on Instagram, something like that, Welcome. We hope we can give you some suggestions on things to read or to avoid reading. Uh, We hope we can entertain you with some discussions as well. And again, we're just honored and flattered that people keep listening. What this episode will be is, as I mentioned, uh, highlights from the first 10 episodes, the first 10 reviews of our Little Black Classics podcast series that we've been doing. I am going to introduce the books five at a time. So I'll give a brief rundown before I play the clips, before I play the highlights for each of the first five episodes, and then I'll take a pause, I'll come back and introduce the next five books, and I think this episode, I was going to do 20 highlights from the first 20 in one show and one podcast, I don't think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do the first 10 books actually in this episode, and then look later for a, you know, 11 through 20 episode of the next 10 highlights, I think that's just a more digestible length, and it looks like this podcast and that one will come out to be about 10, or not 10 minutes in length, an hour in length each, which I think will be, you know, a much better and um, just digestible time. I don't know if I want to put out a three-hour podcast, mega podcast. Maybe, maybe at the end of this uh, journey we'll do that. Before you hear the clips played, uh, the highlights, there will be this audio, which I will play now to introduce them so you'll hear this play. And that will be the sign or signal that we have changed from the previous book review to the next book review. And again, I'm going to upfront introduce five books, try and give you a brief summary and just sort of a brief highlight of what they were about and what they included. And then hopefully you can keep those in mind as you're listening to the to the highlights. I've debated how many I should introduce. I don't know if I want to pull up the curtain and you know bore you with the details on that, but I think five uh, groups of five should be okay. Um, 
Again, we can't thank you folks enough for listening. If you're new and this is your first episode, that's perfect. That's amazing. I think this is maybe the best way to get a taste of a podcast and its tone and all that. And so if you're listening for the first time, that's excellent. I hope you enjoyed the first 10. I think the 11 through 20 highlights will be even better. I think, you know, like as these things tend to do, we've gotten only, you know, sharper and only, uh, I don't know, wittier, I suppose, more insightful as we've gone on. At least I hope so. Maybe I'm delusional. That's fair enough. Um, so let's, uh, let's start the show. So for our first, uh, five highlights for our first five books, we start with Mrs. Rosie and the Priest, which is a short story collection by an Italian author. Oh, I'm not going to begin butchering the names again. I'll leave that up to the best of clips to do. Uh, but it was, yeah, it's from the Dick Hammerin, a short story collection by an Italian author. I think Ryan and I both felt pretty good about that reading. It's kind of has some humor to it. The second uh, book up is As Kingfishers Catch Fire, which is a book by an English author and poet. I think he was a monk, uh, and that was pretty cold for, I think, both of us, though I found one of the poems really beautiful. I remember that. That was pretty fun. The third clip you'll hear is from The Saga of Goonlog's Serpent Tongue. It was the first time that my audio sounded just terrible, like I was stuck in a tin can, so sorry about that. There's really nothing I can do to salvage it, and I also did not like that one. I think Ryan came out kind of okay on it, but it's an old Scandinavian kind of almost mythological does it have myth type elements i don't think it does no i take that back but it's definitely an old adventure type story i didn't connect to it i found the style quite boring but you know the clip is fun and it was interesting to read the fourth clip you'll hear is from on murder considered as one of the fine arts this is a satirical essay um that kind of does what the title suggests it explores why murder is beautiful and should be celebrated and as i just said it is satire so you know take that with a with the right interpretation uh, i think we both enjoy that that's one that i look back on now and think maybe i should have rated it a three which is our kind of like you must read this recommendation but i don't think i did i think i gave it a two at the time um and then finally the fifth clip and final clip you'll hear is from our review on aphorisms on love and hate which is by frederick nietzsche who is a pretty famous philosopher, um, maybe infamous in some ways. But that, I think, probably is one of our favorites of the first 10 uh, that you're about to hear. I think we both came away thinking it was kind of perfectly digestible, infuriating, intriguing, celebratory. It was a kind of a lot of extremes. So those are the first five clips you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy them. After those five play, I'll briefly introduce the next five, and let's get started. But yeah, they're mostly tales of like um, lovelorn people, desperate people, horny people, priests, yep. you know, as yeah. the title implies. Yeah, uh, trying to sneak one in. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't think we would call this traditional of Italian literature, but it's all, it's focused on the male characters. I think almost any 13th century literature, that's what you're going to dig out. 14th, yeah. I mean, but um, yeah, it's just a bunch of main characters who are men, priests and whatnot, businessmen who fall into traps and, you know, have love problems and are, you know, love-worn types. Um, yeah. And most of it's played to humorous effect. I don't know if that speaks to the whole collection, but these five were, were mostly humorous um, and playing it up to just be kind of these hapless guys who mostly get tricked. Although that's not oh, always yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I really like there's, uh, it reminded me of that one, uh, the dude, <laughs> He's like the scrawny guy, and he uh, his his wife basically gets abducted by a pirate, and yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> like treats her like treats her like a woman, 
<laughs> There's some choice <laughs> quotes in there from him. Yeah, that um, he's kind of the old man's out of his depth, out of his yeah. like sexual depth. And there's some <laughs> quotes about how, I mean, it, it's not more delicate than, you know, he didn't know how to plow the field or something. There, it's basically that. I mean, that's it's not pretty, a quote. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, they're not, sure. they're not beating around. But, but uh, one thing I really did want to say is I think this, uh, this translator is translated by this dude, Peter Hainsworth. I feel like he, might have taken some like artistic freedom or that's i don't know it seems like such an interesting job to me it's like that's that's like a really interesting choice of words i wonder if these are literal like as literal translated as you i think well i think with most translation um and granted i don't have i don't even have a foreign language in me but or second language i so i can't speak to all translation but from what i've gathered from reading some world literature it's the translator's work is pretty much as important as the original just in terms of interpretation and picking the right idioms or picking the right phrases so i think i mean it's you know it you you only have to look at two translated classics to understand that there's some pretty different approaches and ways that you can phrase things. So no, and I, I doubt he was playing it up or I doubt he was over overdoing it, but I yeah. bet some of the specificity is, is the translators. At least that would be my expectation, but well, yeah, there are some zingers in here and I think, um, you know, we're going to talk about some of the, of our favorite quotes. This, this one, means, here's a good one from the, um, quote. yeah, this one from the Ricardio did, um, Chinzika, Chinzika sure. uh, loses his wife. That one has a really simple little pun where the pirate says he took one look at his beautiful wife and he stopped wanting any other booty. I mean, that's like such a modern sexual <laughs> pun that I can't imagine. Yeah, I just don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe in the original it said something like he didn't want any other gems or he didn't want any other loot like prize. prize. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> but, but, uh, I, that just seemed like such a specific and telling pun that. Yeah. 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 That's uh, more credit to uh, to the translator. And they're uh, definitely they're, yeah. yeah. One of my other uh, favorite ones was um, he's talking about. I think it's the uh, the story. No, it's not the title story. It's um, or is it the title story? Anyways, and actually, no, it is about the pirate one. The um, <laughs> the Ricardo de Chinzica loses his wife. Um, the guy says, "Is it describing a woman? She was called." Bartolomea, and she was one of the best-looking and most fancy book girls in Pisa, though admittedly there aren't many who don't look like hairy spiders, which I thought was a legit burn. You pulled that for your best quotes. Yeah, well, let's move on to some quotes here. We'll, yeah. we'll try and dig so, in and get... We'll get a little specific without unearthing the, you know, the whole of the text. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was probably one that made me laugh maybe the most. I don't know. That yeah. one's pretty good. I thought that was fantastic. Like uh, also, yeah, weirdly simple simile, but effective. And yeah, and I yeah, can't and say. All, yeah, I'm wondering if that was a literal translation, or you know, if that's more artistic. Uh, it feels too simple to not be literal, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't. It doesn't have some particularly modern bent to it. It's not like some new. I don't know. It's a, a, a hairy spider. I mean, that's. That's like a, that's an ancient creature, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's that not some updated be. joke or something that it seems yeah. too simple to be changed. That totally could have been floating around in, uh, in Italy in the, you know, 14th century. 
1358. Yeah. yeah. Patience plumes to peace. That's a, there's one for your Pinterest. All right. Uh, Harsh. I, <laughs> I was thinking, I, well, I just like the, I wake and feel. I feel like that was like, um, that's like something you would find on like actually, a, That's a pretty good snarky like, Twitter quote. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. It was like some, you know, it's like you, it's like some up and coming like young, like comedian on Twitter. It's just like, I wake and feel. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I thought that one was pretty that good. That one is, yeah, weirdly great. I don't even, was that from a poem or was that from the <laughs> that journal? Was, it was the, uh, it was the title of um one of the poems it's actually on page 27 um and that was the i mean it's a really i think that was the one where he talks about oh yeah uh, sort of the isolation and um you know kind of leaning into that darkness but um i just like it as a general saying i wake and feel yeah it, in the second stanza i am gall i am heartburn <laughs> the pathetic thing is that i'm pretty sure that's a line from like a pepto-bismol ad but at this point you know <laughs> i am gall i am heartburn i am heartburn i, I think that's like a mucinex ad or it's like i am your heartburn i yeah. am your yeah i am gall yeah there's a computerized like animatronic well not animatronic but yeah computerized like vision of a person who's like in their own heart burning yeah i am heartburn yeah, it's a shame I, that uh, advertising and marketing copy is the new version of Gerard Manley Hopkins in 2019. But yeah, a lot of a lot of rips. Uh, yeah, yeah, you might uh, you know read this book and you might catch on to um, you know a lot of these advertising uh, ripoffs. Yeah, yeah, they're they've been they've been mining his stuff for years, and this podcast is intervening to give him the proper credit he deserves. <laughs> yeah. We're coming at you, Mucinex. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bismol. Yeah, new things have come to light. Uh, yeah. yeah, Gerard Manley Hopkins has come to light, man. This book is old. This uh, was written, recorded in the 13th century, according to, again, Wikipedia, which is as far as our research goes, beyond the actual text itself, which we read. Yeah. Yep. And you can tell uh, I had foreshadowed this and didn't even know this book would have this um, rhetorical literary issue which I always hate, which is old books are just name drops, just a long series of name drops. Yeah. Names and places uh, that you forget immediately because there's hundreds of them or what feels like hundreds. And I think that my review of this, which we'll, we'll start as always with just brief reviews here to me, my review is this is a book of just noise and sound, especially if you're a non-native Icelandic speaker, if you're just an English reader like us reading this translated book. There became so many sounds, words, names, that if you delight in that, if you're like, I just want somebody to put two syllables together that I've never seen or two consonants that I've never seen, this book might keep you engaged for its 50 pages. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I, the other thing I would say is that it d- does have a series and a lot of uh, kind of like taunts and, and greetings that are all pretty milk toast. They're mostly duds, but I, I think 13th century, they would have been, you know, pretty fierce. So if you're interested in that, maybe come find this book. Yeah. Um, if you, yeah, if you're really into um, 
Icelandic territory or family history names and, um, you know, uh, words like Thororm or, and I'm just opening the book to a random page and just, because there's at least five names on every page that are just, uh, they just sound ridiculous. Uh, Thornfin at Routamel, Onund and Thorfin. Well, yeah, those uh, that did that does anything for you. You'll you'll get a lot out of this book, but um, it's a nice taste. Yeah, it's uh, it's and it, it reads it does read well. Um, because yeah, you're I I don't know I was able to get uh some some humor out of just like the sheer ridiculousness of some of the um, names and places in this book. It carries the book a little ways. Did you find anything? Did your review include anything? different than mine in terms of uh, just the wildness of the uh, name variety? Just absolutely. I was thinking, yeah, uh, my, well, the, the one review I have, I guess it's kind of more of a criticism. I was just waiting for the, uh, for the action, (laughs) for the action to happen. I mean, there was, you know, kind of, it it carries itself along, but um, I felt like uh, for being like, you know, you, you expect, a Viking uh, story to have a little bit more, uh, I guess, grit to it. But, you know, for being almost a thousand years old, I guess this, this story had considerable grit. Well, I think, yeah, it's um, maybe blame Hollywood movie making of the last hundred years. But if you were going to say, I'm going to describe a duel between two Viking warriors on this page, and, you know, what would you expect to see? I mean, this does about a sentence's worth of description, where it's basically, hey, they swing, oh, his shield's broken, it's over. Something, I mean, you know, (laughs) that's that's about what you're going to get. You know, you're going to get way more lines of their poetry greetings to one another than the... Which I I also found very interesting. Uh... Yeah, yeah, I think those... I mean, as the the Wikipedia page rightly notes, some some scholars doing their work on there. It's you know, it shows you a bit of culture, a bit of Icelandic you know culture, Scandinavian culture too, because uh, they travel all around England too. Um, yep. Of just like yeah, greeting and gift giving culture, and so there there's things to be learned. There's no question, like cultural things. But yeah, I mean the maybe the Vikings TV show, I which I've never even watched, but I presume that that show, like most modern TV moves at a clip, has a lot of action. The whole, it's got a whole setup, but the, the, the bulk of it is basically an essay about why murder is an art form. That's, right. I mean, that's the heart of it. Yeah. Um, but I like that uh, little pause for applause that he snuck in there. And then I liked, um, there's a quote on page 45 that I'm going to open up to now. And it said, uh, the moral of his story was good, for it showed that an astonishing stimulus to latent talent is contained in any reasonable prospect of being murdered. Which, um, that I was did, yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> that was a pretty great one. It's basically, it's like, man, people will do a lot to avoid being murdered by somebody. Which I mean, some of us have to agree with. Some of his better lines are about that, are about how frustrating it is for the artist to have to like wrestle their canvas down which again is just so disturbing and funny and just like yeah it's yeah, disturbing it, yeah he talks about uh yeah and i yeah he does refer to um and it's not like 
he's not talking about assassinations and he's not talking about like he he outlines like a very kind of um sort of like different guidelines that you should abide by and um yeah he does talk about like the interaction between the person who's doing the murdering and the person who's being murdered and um i thought that was a funny observation yeah yeah that's great I, for my part, I'm bringing you back two, um, I guess we can't call them segments, but two recurring quote themes or quote um, categorizations. Yeah, the Pinterest. Bringing back the Pinterest quote. Pinterest quote of the week. Let's it's back. It. You can't keep Pinterest down. No, you know? I think we may be the two people on earth who have referenced Pinterest so much and have both never used it, but I'm going to keep doing that. Um, I don't know yeah. why. It makes me happy. Me too. I like to pretend that I know things on the internet when I don't. Uh, that I think is part of it. I think that's everybody on the internet. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm joining in on that. Yeah. My, my Pinterest quote of the week is: "But even imperfection itself may have its ideal or perfect state." Which, come on, that's going up in somebody's kitchen, or that's <laughs> that's going above someone's couch. Yeah, somebody who like can't bake something like that. The like- the, the construction itself isn't even that, you know, this the the text of this is a bit older, but that's pretty readable too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I uh that kind of reminds me of um there's another quote where he's saying like even like the best thought out, the best planned murder could be like, you know, carried out perfectly, but um it's like often in the planning where that's where like the artist finds like the most Uh, satisfaction because it's like everything that could be will be kind of thing yeah the quote it uh man it's it's perfect for that because ripped out of i mean nothing is better than ripping a satire out of context and then treating it as authentic that's why this quote is just so perfect because he's talking about why murder should be an art because even though it's kind of like base he says that it's you know even something even something that is harmful can have a perfect state so we should start acknowledging when it's done perfectly right yeah again applied to this is disturbing and i think kind of obviously satire hopefully um but you could easily see somebody just ripping that and putting it on a facebook meme or like god yeah it's i think it's perfect for that oh yeah yeah no totally it's basically like um you ever, it's like, have you ever eaten like at a restaurant or something where it's like, oh man, that that piece of steak or something, that was a work of art. And then it's like, well, what exactly would qualify that as an art form? And then you just dive in. That's basically exactly what this guy was doing, De Quincey. Yep. Yeah, and uh, bless him for it. Um, sure, yeah, sure. This, one, uh, this one's on page 11 and it's about goodwill and it says... Uh, similarly, there's much more happiness to be found in the world than dim eyes can see if one calculates correctly and does not forget all of those moments of ease which are so plentiful in every day of every human life, even the most oppressed. I thought that was a pretty great one. Is that going on the Pinterest board, do you think? <sighs> it might be a little too long, but the idea no, of it is very Pinterestable. Yeah, no, I think so. That's he. Um, there's a little it, things. There's like a you know, like the appreciate the little things. There's got to be ten billion of those pins. I think. Oh man, yeah, certainly. That's too far gone. There's innumerable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I yeah. think uh, that it's a good quote to start off with, especially since. And frankly, I didn't pull that many quotes that were on the more grim outlook. Um, 
which he certainly indulges in a lot. But yeah. he's such a, I guess the simplest comparison or simplest expression would be hot and cold. Um, he really, there's some tonal and, and um, idea whiplash in this collection. Like he really <laughs> goes from idea to idea and it's can spin you around sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. You can, uh, you can go from like shaking your head in like total agreement then to just like puzzling what comes next or then just like flat out disagreeing. But yeah, I think, um, this one was just kind of right in the middle there. And that was one that I reread a few times and that I, uh, had to highlight it. He's got, I saw one of your quotes here, which I won't read. I'll let you explain it. But both of us pulled quotes that for the year 2019 have like immediate, uh, if not topical relevance, like specifically political relevance, which, you know, we won't dig into the um, the issues of the day per se. But this quote I wrote down as being like, if you're if you're in an internet feud or if you're in an internet debate in 2019 over any topic, if you're writing hate posts on a Facebook wall, this is a good quote for you. Um, it's from the section called love is a device. And it says, whoever wants really to get to know something new, be it a person, an event or a book does well to take up this new thing with all possible love to avert his eye quickly from even to forget everything about it that he finds anemical, objectionable or false. Um, which is a, a cry for empathy that you don't hear in some of his other passages. Um, and so I, it's a big ask, you know, again, I'm not going to apply this statement to any one issue or whatever, or any one topic that is in our current events or in our world. But it's uh, it's a big ask for the internet, but maybe maybe a bold one is what we need. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. That's bold enough. Preach, man. I like it. Internet commenters, uh, turn to Nietzsche for your empathy needs. It's the last place anyone's ever going to expect you to go, and hopefully, any Facebook trolls that exist are not listening to this show. I just somehow. have to, I have to think we mentioned this in the setup to this episode or the, in the previous episode, we mentioned this, but for all the high school students who stumble upon a Nietzsche quote about like disliking people or the world or religion, I have to find that there's some kind of, they often descend into internet commenting madness and cruel. I feel like there has to be a connection. I, I don't have the sociology or chops to prove this. And I don't have a grant. To, to go find the connection of grant money. Yeah. But I feel like we could trace a line from like, you know, kids scrawling in notebook, all these Nietzsche quotes that they don't really get the context of to maybe internet troll. There might be yeah. a link. I, I can't prove it. I could see that. I guess, you know, like trolling, think about like trolling like 15, 20 years ago is basically like, you know, those kids who like etch that type of stuff on like your their desk. So like the next person who right. comes and like sits at your desk in the next class has to like read whatever bathroom stall stuff. Yeah. Which still sure. goes on. That, that stuff has not disappeared. Kid, kids like the permanence of it. You know, it's a, it's a real mark. <laughs> it's, yeah. Well, of course I think, you know, trace that back as long as you want cave, cave drawings, whatever. It's, it's still, we're all, we're all just stall. carving, you know, oxes and hunting parties. It's all, it's all thousands yeah. of years oh, old and yeah. just and updated. Hopefully, hopefully in thousands more we're you know, we're judged as a society based on high school, middle school, bathroom. God, man, I'd, 
I'd bring truck, it on. Truck, I'd love truck it. Stop. I, yeah, truck stop. I'd love the intergalactic judgment of a, you know, <laughs> alien civilization coming down to like that really graffiti looking S that everyone drew all the time. I thought that uh, was a Stussy S for a long time, but it's not. It just has its own classic it's its own thing yeah, let, me, let me throw out then i, I do my only other quote i pulled although you're right the whole book is kind of a quotable volume um i pulled an improved quote for a rebellious high schooler because i know we set it up last week to talk about it that way this one i think is is better and also it doesn't again he gets thrown around with some religion stuff a lot which you know you, that mileage may vary in in your high school rebellion whether you like or dislike religion but um this one just says that others suffer must be learned and it can never be learned completely, which I think is just a much better, um, not a type of nihilism, but it's like a, the anti-empathy kind of fallback. Um, I thought that would be a better, better use of a, a broad Nietzsche quote. Yeah, that one's, that was pretty good. And I think there are a couple of other ones in addition to that, that are kind of like, you know, you'll not, you'll, it's all there's kind of a give and take kind of theme it's like you'll you'll never be under, able to understand unless you really try but it's like uh you'll never be yeah i don't know that it seems like that's kind of a theme even throughout like some of the other ones like um man there was this one that he was talking about <laughs> it's like friendship with uh i think friendship with a female i think was what the like the title was called here let me try and find it but it was basically like there can't be a compatible friendship. Hold on. Now I have to find it. Well, he also, I can fill time while you're digging. He also did mention, don't remember the quarter page, but that living with someone. And I think he did mean expressly romantically, like having a roommate, but romantic roommate is like an yeah. untenable, like no one should ever do that. No one should ever live with another person because it's, you just become unbearable to each other over time. You know, it's funny is um, those two those two aphorisms are mag- well, I, what are we calling them is well the titles aphorism aphorisms or? well you, Peng- penguin them. gives you the all clear to say both or either but okay. i'd say it's you know go with the title okay so th- those two aphorisms are right next to each other so they're listed uh oh, classic right next to each other so the <laughs> the one i was referencing is women's friendship and it says uh women can very well enter into a friendship with a man, but to maintain it, a little physical antipathy must help out. Yeah. Just like, uh, there's your host- Nietzsche. Hostility. There he is. Yeah. Little hostility has to exist. There he is. Too, yeah. yeah. We love that. that. Yeah. But, um, and then That's, the one you're uh, talking about, yeah. <laughs> then the one you're talking about says, if spouses did not live together, good marriages would be more frequent. That's it. That's all. Oh, okay. He doesn't even yeah. elaborate. See, I was I was put it projecting onto him some thoughts, but now he just leaves it there. I guess I guess that's like the I guess that's what you can say about his writing that's really good is that even with like a one sentence thing, you're like, yes, no, yes, no. And yeah, then we you have like a, a we did go dialogue. out of order today, but let's jump back, uh, which you know doesn't really matter much to our style. But let's jump back to quick reviews then, because we we actually didn't open with our quick reviews though. Now I think you've hit upon a quote that kind of exposes my review and maybe yours. Okay. Is that my comparison and my review or analogy is like this is the twenty one minute sitcom of philosophy and and like you know thought which I think to a 2019 reader is extremely appealing. I found it appealing. And it also 
you know, when you're doing quick in and outs like that, you know, he doesn't take a book's worth of research to decide if a man and a woman can be friends if they're attracted to each other or no. like he's not doing the deep dive. We, we've since, I mean, people have since researched, you know, attraction and sexuality and whatever. He's just, he's in it for the sentence, you know, which I think that can really appeal to people. It, it'll give you a quick little thing to think about. It, it'll probably, this collection make you say oh yeah as much as it will make you say fuck off i think is like an equal measure <laughs> yeah and dude if it was a if this was a philosophical sitcom uh, i would watch it like it's, yeah uh, i think i would too so many good hot takes but also even if they're like you know not even elaborate just one sentence two sentences uh, they all really kind of make you contemplate even if you agree right away, you might go back later and reread it and be like, ah, I don't know. I, yeah. There's, there's just so much to think about. I think it's, uh, it's very straightforward, but it's also very, uh, it's kind of timeless, but that kind of goes into my review. This is the first Nietzsche that I've read. Is that how you say it? Nietzsche? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Friedrich Nietzsche. I, th- I think, I think there's a few, I think there's a few pronunciations that are in play and that could be acceptable. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be discern. I'm not gonna be the one to have to decide. You got to be the authority on that, though. I, I'm definitely. I've not. heard the hard ch sound like Nietzsche, like that. Ni- Nietzsche. Yeah. 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 This. Uh. He's German. I don't know if that. Well, yeah. it, it deeply affects my understanding. I've, I went back and re-listened to the uh, first episode, the Mrs. Rosie and the Priest. I mean, these international names, man, we are profoundly just, amateur at pronouncing yeah, yeah. Or, any international name. Even American ones, I can't hang on all of them, you know? But And looking, yeah, I just scrolled through the, uh, the list of the 80 classics and I think that's just going to be a consistent theme. We're just going to keep bitch. Yeah, we'll lean into it. We'll keep trying. You know, we're not yeah. we're not hiding from it. We're open. Yeah. If anything, you know, if there is anything to be learned, someone weigh in. Tell us, tell us the correct pronunciation or the. Uh, someone's got to write that wrong. If someone out there knows, but I have no idea. Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, go with go with uh, go with Nietzsche's God on this one. Whatever you're yeah. feeling, man. Okay, we're back, or at least I, Travis, am back from the first five clips. Hopefully, you enjoyed a little sneak peek at the first five episodes of reviews we just did. Let's introduce the next and final five for this podcast episode. Um, the next five clips you'll hear start with a review from on traffic. Uh, that was an, actually two essays by an English author kind of criticizing consumerism, commercialism. Uh, I think I also enjoyed that a lot at the time. I don't remember my review. I think Ryan came out pretty neutrally on it, but I remember enjoying that a lot. After Traffic, you'll hear thoughts on Wailing Ghosts, which is a uh, collection of miniature tales, which I think is the best way to put it. That's how the Penguin words it, um, by a Chinese author. I think this may have been one of my least favorites as well, which I'll get into. Ryan, uh, has, as he points out in the episode two, I think really just enjoys short clips like that, short, or short stories like that. And so I think he felt more strongly and positively. After that is A Modest Proposal, which is one of the most famous, I don't know, pieces of satire ever written, probably, by Jonathan Swift, uh, an Irish author, or British. Oh, man, was he? No, he was Irish for sure. Never mind. I take it all back. He was, you know, he's fully Irish, etc. Anyway, uh, we've got some thoughts on A Modest Proposal. And then we end this episode 
uh, not with ooh, we're not with women yet. We will go next to three dynasty, three Tang dynasty poets, which is as it suggests three collections of different poems from Tang Dynasty China. Those were pretty scattered but intriguing. I think Ryan and I both came out with a two on that, perhaps. There are definitely some some kind of nuggets in there to enjoy. And then, I jumped ahead, but here we are. We will conclude the, this episode of Highlights with our final thoughts on Walt Whitman's On the Beach at Night Alone, which is not just on that poem. It's a collection of, uh, you know, 10 to 15 of his works and excerpts and things. Uh, and I think I pulled for that one a longer or extended clip where we just discussed this one, the pageant poem, or a pageant in particular. It kind of got us both talking quite a bit about his uh, patriotism and views. So I hope you enjoy the final five clips. I will probably not do an outro, so I'll say goodbye to you now. Again, thank you so much for listening, and look for the 11 through 20 highlight episode coming up very soon. Uh, we hope you join us for that as well. Thanks again. Let's dig into some, I saw you pulled the printer's quote, so we're, you know, we're on theme today. We definitely are, uh, we're internet relevant 2019 this week. It's a popular segment. I think we got to keep it around. Yeah, I'll throw mine out there. I did write though that it's the final, ultimate, unimpeachably most relevant Pinterest quote. So I maybe for me, I'll kill my half of this segment next oh, wow. time and I'll let you keep going. Because he says on page three, taste is not only a part and an index of morality, it is the only morality, which is kind of at the beginning of his argument. I mean, that's, isn't that the whole crux of Pinterest is just... <laughs> Let's go to the public square and sh- and see what our taste is. You know, we'll compare your taste to my taste. Taste to my taste, your board to my board. Yeah, let's let's go and like flash our morality and see what people have. I mean, yeah, that's that is pretty uh that's pretty fantastic and very very Pinterestable. That's like the uh I don't know. Yeah, maybe you do retire the segment stop it there. It's not going to get any more uh, spot on than that. What was your Pinterest quote? Mine was, um, let's see, where is it? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's on page five, also early. But he says, what we like, and like is italicized, what we like determines what we are, also italicized, and it is the sign of what we are, and to teach taste is inevitably to form character. I thought that was like a kind of a snooty, maybe more of a stuck up kind of quote, or just like um, one of those like classics that you would see in like, what was that movie with Robin Williams? He's like the English teacher. The Dead Poet Society? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know why that. I don't, I, I don't think, think he, I think he would hate that quote in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> really? I can't well, tell you the last time I saw it. Well, I guess it would depend on how he, he would define taste. Uh, in that, I guess in that movie, if you define taste as your sort of interests and philosophies, I guess, maybe the things you read, I think this guy does mean it more literally in a sense of, you know, just what kind of architecture you would use, for example. Although his, you know, I think critiques go deeper than that, of course. He's using that as a vehicle, but... right. I, yeah, I guess it would depend on how taste is interpreted. But I mean, out of context, that again is that's that's pinnacle Pinterest right there. Yeah, pinnacle Pinterest. Um, let's throw ourselves headlong into other current events. Um, I don't want to give away when we're recording this. Let's just keep it a mystery. But it is post uh, the Notre Dame fire, which was recently. Though I, at this point, I truly couldn't even say when that was. Weeks ago, <laughs> a week ago, I you know it was I, a, a bit ago. A couple weeks, I think. 
I pulled the quote for that one, you know, since we're trying to keep it relevant, uh, current events. On page 19, he says, But your railroad mounds, vaster than the walls of Babylon, your railroad stations, vaster than the temples of um, Ephesus? I don't know that reference. Probably Greek. And innumerable. Your chimneys, how much more mighty and costly than cathedral spires? Your harbor piers, your warehouses, your exchanges, all these are built to your great goddess of getting on, which is how he kind of, in a, I think, kind of, you know, pokey satirical way, frames that they, they don't worship a god anymore. They just worship getting on. Just, you yeah. know, to on to the next sale, on to the next purchase. Just get more, earn more, spend yeah. more. Yeah. Um, and so he's, it's kind of his way of just saying, you can't be inspired that way. And so of course you have these, you know, you have these functional masterpieces, these, you know, warehouses, things for, you know, the purchasing, spending, whatever selling, but I, but I can't give you a good idea of how to form your public building because there's nothing worth forming it over. Yeah. I think he talks a little bit about, I I don't know if I pulled this quote, but a little bit later on about like, Oh, I think I actually did. It follows up kind of like that. Like, thought it was kind of a good dig. He was, um, he was about saying like, uh, conceivably, he can't think about a good architecture for the exchange because there's, you know, if there were any heroism in the factor deed of exchange, which might typically be carved on the outside of your, like, he was basically saying like, I can't figure out how to decorate this, uh, this thing, like whatever your guys are trying to build. Cause it's just for like nothing or getting on. Yeah. Yeah. He makes even a joke recommendation on 22 about like, maybe you should put uh, pillars in it, but then at the bottom put a big hole so you can stick money in it. Like you can just have people donate bills and just give you more money, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Maybe, maybe you could carve yourself like a donation pit, you know, that, that might be <laughs> in- inspiring. <laughs> it's- yeah. Yeah, that's sort of another way he critiques it. Although he doesn't actually give too many specific building recommendations. Don't think this guy was an architect. I think he was, yeah, just more of a critic. Uh, yeah, that seems that seems pretty clear. This, yeah, if this podcast takes a turn into the weird, wacky world of translated text, then so be it. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair. That's a good turn for us. Let's turn, right. hey, turn this guy into some review scores. Um, unless, did you have any more quotes? As you said, it's not a very quotable text. No, like uh, I didn't really pull, you know, anything too specific. It's, that's why, you know, I was thinking we compare this one. It's almost easier to compare the stories or sort of digest the stories, especially when they're as short as a page or two. It's kind of like, um, you almost look at it as just like a, almost like a quote where it's just one idea kind of, but um, no, I didn't pull any other quotes from this, uh, from this. Okay. What are you thinking for a rating then? We do a one to three system. One being do not read this three being go out and read this. And then two always being a qualified middle ground of some kind. What's the rating for you on whaling ghosts? I think, you know, I think I'm also discovering that this is just this like the style that I I like with these little black classics, the penguin 
novels. I don't know. I, I'm finding myself more interested in the short stories. So I don't know, man. I found these to be interesting enough. I've never heard any like classical China, like mythical type stories before. And I felt like there were some, there's some twists and turns in here enough to definitely keep me being like somewhat interested as opposed to, you know, say last week with like getting into like architectural style and, you know, like the religious type stuff and more like lecture driven. I don't know when that guy got the chunk bit out of his forehead on page, I think five, I was kind of just like, all right, this, this is, uh, there's going to be some stuff in here. Some weird yeah, stuff. Some promise, uh, some promise biting. Yeah. Promise so, biting. I don't know, man. I'm going to give it a solid two. I was leaning towards three for a little bit, but then, you know, you can't just go throwing threes around just like they're, you know, that easy. I feel like this is a solid two for me. I do. Yes. The description I think is fitting. So I guess when I say one, people will already know if they've listened to this, if, it, if this is for them, it, this is a hard one for me. I've been keeping track of the, uh, of our scores overall on a, a different Google spreadsheet. Just just for, I think, posterity's sake, if we end up getting really deep into this and make it, then it might be a curious thing to look back on. I think and it will. So, so far, the only other one I've given, uh, and I even gave a two to those poems that from that nature uh, monk person who that was, those weren't even good, but there was one in there I thought was just brilliant. Uh, now, the only other one for me was Goonlog. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be a recurring theme, I think, for me. Speaking of theme, I just, when stories lack in characterization and just motivation description. Yeah. I don't, I don't want an author to take me very far. Like, you know, there's a lot of, I, I like a lot of show don't tell, but mm-hmm. this is just, they're, <laughs> they're telling you everything here. Like I'm not seeing it. There's just, it lacks subtlety. It is kind of exciting. Like you said, in a little bit, um, I wouldn't say any of them are spooky. It's again, you don't have any cadence or delivery to the writing. So the ghost stories where the, they're trying to get these spirits out of the house or yeah. things like there's one where it's, you know, like the shining, he goes to a, a man, abandoned mansion and has dinner with like these, dis, there's like just yeah. deceased ghosts and he just eats a dinner there. Yeah. It just, it, it's so flat. I, I just can't it's- fathom in, in a world where you can go to amazon.com and rent the shining for like one ninety nine, Like what? I just, why Oof. go read that when you can just go watch the shining? I, it's a, uh, it's a tough sell, I think in 2019. Yeah. I feel like, well, that's a good point in 2019. It's like, you want, you want the meat and potatoes and I, they're like, there's no shock value, real shock value here. It's all very matter of fact. And you know, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And That's what I think is if you're pairing this with like a cultural study again, and I, I just keep saying like college, but maybe you're just curious. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're just, you read a book about China or, you know, classical, like of course there'd be reasons you would want this, but I just, as a broad recommendation, I think it's a one for me. I just can't imagine a, a person, you know, who doesn't have that interest finding really much here that they couldn't find in elsewhere. I think I read um, when I was teaching middle schoolers, we did crossovers with social studies. And in sixth grade, at least here in North Carolina, they have to do 
ancient history and they, they have to know what the epic of gilgamesh is but they never had to read it so then i went and bought it because i'd never had to read it either even in like western civ stuff and then so i went and read it because it's not very long um and then i thought well i'll pull some passages and we'll analyze it and i'll actually show them the text which we did i didn't have them read the whole thing but that's a story that just kind of revels in its strangeness there's occurrences that are mythological and odd but it just has that extra leg maybe it's just because it's one continuous story but it has that extra leg of detail in it that just makes you invest just a bit more you know there's a bit more on each uh, plot point there's a bit more on each character and i think that's a story obviously that has the advantage of being one continuous story it's also far older like thousands of years but that just reminded me of an ancient tale that took uh, ancient liberties with storytelling and kind of, you know, that, that kind of off kilter tone, uh, strange mythological occurrences. And it just has more enjoyment in them. Like this, some of these stories, the way it describes the, the fantastical stuff, it's like almost embarrassed. Like it just, it, or like they don't want to say too much or something. It's just, it's yeah. very hurt. It just cuts it off. And it's like, well, yeah, like, you know, a monster is just a monster. It's indicative of the, this whole collection because it, if you're willing to, to meet him halfway, halfway being about 200 years ago or 250, then yeah. there's so much gold here that you can mine out of this. But yeah. You have to, without the context, it still works a lot of it, but also a lot of it does not. I would, I would be, I think it'd be misleading to say, oh no, go in blind. You don't even have to know what Ireland's politics were at this time to just get it. Like it, it's not going to work that well. Yeah. That's a lot tougher. Yeah. Like the, I mean, with any satire, it's circumstances, everything, situation, the social scene, the politics, and this is no exception. Though a lot of it's funny on its own. Surely yeah. a lot of it's funny on its own. Yeah, there are some, there's definitely uh, points where you're like, oh man, yeah, that's really good. That's really funny. But I feel like when you're looking at satire, we've we've read a little bit, uh, a little bit of satire, some older satire. And I feel like you, I go in kind of uh, hesitant because I'm not sure like how forward or how outlandish they're going to be. And it was, it was pretty early on that you were like oh yeah this guy sure it's a hundred couple hundred years old but he has a he has a pretty crisp and you know current sense of humor and i think you can pretty like i liked where he was going from like from the onset and and again parts of it just work regardless of when you're reading it the messages he's got a lot of universality in here the 2019 connection i pulled um I wrote down, give me my 2019 connection or give me death. I don't know why. I don't think it relates to any Liberty quote. Strong um, feelings. Yeah, I know. I've, I just think it's relevant. Um, I also typed this like two, two weeks ago, so I don't. I kind of remember it, but the quote works on its own. It's, I mean, where words make a sound wholly are inarticulate, which gives so much disturbance and so little information, which is just about as much of a quote about yelling into a void of information as you'd want or need in 2019. Oh man, um, yeah, that's really that's really good. That's pretty and, spot on. Yeah, and it's just such a uh, well said, you know, crisp little sentence that is perfectly critical, and you don't even really need the context to enjoy it. You can just think, yeah, fucking a. That's just we just that's something I feel every day. Yeah, you think about you know we were talking about Twitter earlier, and it's like the the power of like the comments and 
how, you know, you can be reading some of these things and say, you know, you read a comment that sounds, you know, devastating and this and that, but then you can find out, click on this person. It's like a 12 year old. It's like the power of the, uh, the power of the, of the words. Yeah. They, they mean very little, but, um, just throwing them around. It's, uh, it's like the, that's what everyone's doing now. Yeah. It's parsing information from sound disturbances has uh, become a modern skill. One yeah. which you need to have in order to yeah. navigate. Um, so yeah, th- there are connections aplenty. And even, I, even if the satire and some of the political particulars don't, you know, you, you're going to have to do the work on that to connect it. It's, there's still plenty to be found, even if you don't have the context. Right. What other quotes stood out to you? I've got a couple more, but did you have another one that was uh, particularly interesting? There was one, there's, I mean, there were a couple that, um, you know, kind of put the time and place into perspective. A lot of the Ireland stuff, he's got a short story and I think it's just called like a, a short view of the state of Ireland. And it's, you know, it's not that long, but he kind of, kind of breaks down <laughs> where they're at as a, uh-huh. as a country, as a country at the point. And, um, he's, <laughs> he gets a couple really good digs in. And uh, on page, I think it was, let's see, page 11. He's like, no strangers from other countries uh, make this part of their travels where they can expect to see nothing but scenes of misery and desolation. Oh, yeah. Uh, One thing that I also really thought that Swift does well is he uses um, italics, I think, very, uh, like, very intelligently. I like, uh, I noticed Mm -hmm. that like halfway through, I'm like, man, when this guy chooses to italicize a word or like capitalize a word, it's like, it's in the, it's in the perfect spot. I don't know what you call that or if there's an official term for that. There are, I'll, I'll try and dig if while you're explaining, I'll try and dig into the, the old Oxford literature dictionary. I keep by my bedside here. See if I can pull (laughs) those. It's, it really was just a stylistic decision, but even pre-Victorian, like well before that Shakespeare era, in nonfiction to, yeah, to both italicize and capitalize. I mean, if you read the, the declaration of independence, even that oh, yeah. has, it's rampant with that with, sure. where freedom in this sentence is capitalized. Freedom in that sense is not, it, it's just another uh, flourish adds a layer of dimension that, yeah, we have lost that. In fact, We're I mean, com- completely lost. Yeah. Capitalization at this point makes you look like a buffoon. I mean, even <laughs> capitalizing a word incorrectly, like if it's not a proper noun, you just, yeah, look like a fool. Um, right. There are still some instances, though, where I think it's relevant. I remember in in school and in college, uh, people talk about big L literature, like capital L, to de- delineate between like books for fun and books for art kind of a d- debate. You know, if you want to get entrenched in that argument, what what counts as literary or whatever. But that, okay. I mean, th- that's not like a it's not a stylistic use at that point. It's like categorizing. You know, it's just. Yeah, but um, I don't know. That was something that I kind of picked out. Uh, it's rampant. There's a lot oh, yeah, of and, and yeah, it's just been completely lost. But yeah, Swift. I thought he did it did it really well. Yeah, we'll do our best with the names. We always try. Yeah, um, but the yeah the first one, um, you know, he the the tranquility thing came up a lot, and I think he was just like man, when I see a river like this, I just want to sit and just stay and just chill for 
for a long time, forever. Yeah, yeah. I I did pick another Pinterest quote. I where I'm getting back into the uh, the peddling of those quotes for anyone out there curating your board based on my really bad recommendations. Here's another. This one's pretty short too. Also, I I do feel like this quote kind of has maybe not an inverse in it, but there's a tweak you could make to make it, I think, a better Pinterest quote for your home. Anyway, the quote is, talk, laughter, never a time to go home, which was the final line of a poem about meeting up with someone, kind of like a stranger occurrence where you just think, oh, you know, I'm talking and laughing and I want to stay here and have this chat. I want to hang out with you. And I, the never a time to go home part of that quote makes sense in the context because the person's already out and about and they just met someone new. Mm-hmm. You could change the quote, though, to say never a time to leave home, implying like our home has such talk and laughter and joy that uh, we, I just want to be here at home all the time. So there, you know, you could tweak that one to your needs. There's a lot of malleability here in this eighth-century uh, Chinese literature, folks. Yeah, yeah. There's a, uh, there's just a lot to, uh, a lot to process there, and it kind of reminds me of like the "Live, Laugh, Love," the the maybe the most infamous Pinterest quote of all time. Oh, it's so true. And this this one is really on the edge of that. Yeah, you're completely. That's a hundred percent correct. I hadn't thought of that. Oh yeah, I think it's just uh, it's the talk. It's the talk laughter part. I feel like there's those. Oh, now I'm gonna have to go on Pinterest and look them up. But they're like, you know, it's like our house is like filled with three things: mm-hmm. talk, laughter, and something happiness or joy or something. Beer, weed, and Trader Joe's mac and cheese. <laughs> right. What, what else is Trader Joe's? What, what is their frozen dish of? Uh, what's their frozen entree of choice? Frozen entree, their of- signature frozen oh, entree. Oh man, um, signature frozen entree. Oh, what do we usually get? Some we get a uh, a lasagna that's pretty good, and there's another mm. thing. Oh, uh, the chicken piccata. I don't think it's frozen. But it's oh. one of those things where the chicken is just cooked already and you just basically bring it home and heat it up. Right. You're, or you don't have to heat it up depending on your shame level. That, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, if you want to, if you want to like cook it in the sauce or I don't know. Yeah, that could also just be like a total room temp. Only a psychopath would uh would do that. I turned a, a person I was talking to the other day onto... Um, this is something I've never even really, I think I ate it one time and was so stunned by that it, its existence that I never bought it or ate it again. But they make a, a kind of a peanut buttery type consistency thing, but it's like nut, I think it's called, oh gosh, sucralose, not sucralose, that's like a chemical. Um, it's essentially though, it is a peanut butter texture and consistency, but it tastes mm-hmm. like sugar cookies is the only way to describe it. So what? it's it's spreadable. It's a spreadable, uh, call it a paste or like a, or a butter of type, a is butter like type a, thing. Is it like a cookie dough? No, 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 because like you can eggs? spread it. You you can spread it. And hmm. so it's, but it essentially tastes like sugar cookie. So you it's can like dump, a spreadable cookie dough. Kind of. Yeah. Although I think it's put in, it's in the like butter section, like peanut butter, almond butter section. It just has a different name. Apparently it's popular in Europe or or something. And anyway, I had somebody showed it to me years ago and I was so blown away that it existed. I think it's popular for dunking things in or using, I don't think people actually put it on toast. 
I, I guess could you could that be I could see that being like a big thing for like kids. You know, like there are some kids who just want to eat everything sweet and maybe it's like the healthy option to like Nutella. Oh, uh, I don't know if it's a healthy option. I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's a healthy option at all. I don't have the I don't have the nutritional facts in front of me, but man, I I'd be surprised if it were a healthy option. Um, yeah. No, it was uh, I, I think it's one of those Trader Joe's only um oddity items or uh, kind of, I guess Trader Joe's does pretty well bringing in non-American, uh, you know, international items, trying to make True. them a little more mainstream. I think this is a European thing. True. Well, now I'm going to have to go and check that out. L- look it out. Seek it. Is, oh man, that's a perfect segue. It is a rally cry in a sense. Is the rally cry in 2019 too shrill and too aggressive. This is, I think, the only, probably, you know, well, I mean, the only explicit 2019 connection I've made so far. But mm. there, there is patriotism in here. And granted, the, the language he used and the things it was evoking, I actually ended up looking up the poem because it was either called The Beautiful Pageant or The Pageant. I forgot the name of it. But I had to look up the context of it because it's, in this collection anyway, it struck me as a bit odd and more more nationality based and more governmentally based. A lot of his writings about nature and it is about America in an abstract way, but not so much about, Hey, there are other countries and other it's his poetry. So inclusive. Often this was the only poem that was, what was it's odd. I, it requires its own podcast because it is both inclusive, but then also weirdly fetishizing. Uh, And I, so I guess he wrote it in response to a Meiji restoration that was a Japanese shogunate hmm. government and they, they did a parade or a celebration in New York city and they yeah. asked him to write about it. Like, Oh, okay. Cause I was, I kind of took it as like, Hey man, look at all these mix of like beautiful, uh, nationalities of people that come and like make New York, but also America like so fantastic. Like look at everything that they bring. Yeah. Uh, and he talks a lot about, I think it like Nippon is in like the first sentence and you're like, okay, we're talking about Japan or, uh, he, yeah, he's like referencing, he still calls it the Orient. I mean, it was a long time ago, the Asiatic continent. Yeah. Even, that, even yeah. ignoring, I mean, obviously language usage, how we sure. talk, how we use adjectives, how we refer to different cultural groups, ethnic groups, nationality group, like that stuff obviously ebbs and flows. It isn't even the word orient, although that has become its own like sociological theory with exotis- exoticism and everything, but whatever. Yeah. Ignoring the word, like the messages, I mean, the, the lines I pulled, there's more, but I pulled ones that said, the. Uh, oops, that was the word one. I'm not going to read that again. Uh, he says, I chant the new empire grander than any before as in a vision it comes to me. I chant America the mistress. I chant a greater supremacy, which I, it's hard to, and again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm retrofitting language now onto him, mm-hmm. but it's hard to see America empire and supremacy in one, you know, a couple set of lines and just not think that is maybe a bit aggressive. Um, yeah. And it's strange because even within the context of the poem itself, again, this would require a, 
a type of exegesis of this poem in its own podcast, but he could mean the new global empire. He could, I think in part of it is he's just, he's just reveling in what he sees. There are these new cultural interactions. He talks a lot about artifacts and there's, there's the statue and there's a, this God I've never seen or this idol I've, I don't understand. And there's this new yeah. music I've never heard. And so copious islands beyond, beyond. Yeah. Part of it is that. So I, the new empire, I suppose a generous reading could be like, oh, he just means it's globalization in 1860. But it also, that's just not also what the line says. Yeah. Chanting a greater supremacy is a little, yeah, that's, yeah, that, that one was a little out there. So I, I think, and I did, I mean, this was a brief Google I did. I was just curious about the context of it. I guess there is some debate over just how far his nationalism goes. I know he was definitely a big westward expansion. You know, we have a vast continent. Look at this glorious open yeah. landscape. Um, and we don't need to recount the American genocide of the Native Americans on this podcast. Not but that, that already that notion is com- very complicated. And yes. how, how effusive he is about... The, the globe or the the earth being for all people and it's all spiritual connection. You have to feel at least a little complicated here about just how truthful his message would be, or you know, politically at his time, the implications hmm. it had or didn't have. It's I, there's I found this article on JSTOR about this poem, the Broadway pageant. And mm-hmm. how that can help us interpret his nationalism. I only read the opening just because I was like, oh, I'm curious if other people have read him as such a nationalist as this poem sort of makes him seem. It seems yeah. complicated anyway. I don't know. There seems to be some scholarly debate around it. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine, you know, I've looking into sort of more about him and the time and what his, what his thoughts on yeah nationalism these types of things were i i i guess i'm interested now to kind of dig a little bit deeper on him but i didn't get the from from a lot of his other work in here i didn't really get that i guess it did kind of stand out in that way a broadway pageant because you know you don't really get any of that really in any of the other stories or poems in this collection yeah, it jumped out to me, and it just made it, I, you know, it's not like I'm going to say it. It shades my interpretation of all of his work. I definitely haven't done enough, you know, historical digging to right. say that one way or the other. But in tone and me- and even t- just topic, even uh, tone, he's tonally, he's just always effusively connected, passionate, and just deeply feeling every feeling. Uh, so that doesn't really change. But the, yeah. topically, it just felt like it was the most specific about other countries, regions, places. And um, I mean, the last line of that poem is they shall now also march obediently eastward for your sake, Libertad, which is the word freedom in Spanish. Right. So I, you know, who's marching eastward? I mean, I guess I should reread the stanza. Like, are we, does that mean that freedom is just spreading throughout the globe? And obviously as a, as a philosophical, statement is more freedom bad rarely you know it's usually that's a positive thing but as a political statement i I guess i just you know he wasn't a politician i suppose but it just raised questions and i thought this is the most you know america needs to make things happen statement um the rest was yeah as we discussed more about nature more about you know metaphor yeah human spirit i suppose even though 
I guess you could argue that that is. But yeah, I I agree. I thought it stuck out in the same way. And in 2019, uh, I don't think that that part I think would could not be ignored, or at least to a reader today wondering about I don't know America's political place in the in the globe, wondering about international relations. It it is a poem that would have to be thought about, you know, whether you come away feeling better, worse, more gung ho, less gung ho, more patriotic. I, I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. obviously up to the reader. I think he though does seem effusively patriotic, like hundred percent. He's he's driving the the pickup truck and he's got the American flag out the back. Like based on that poem, again, I you know. I don't want to yeah. transport him 100% to 2019, but anyway, things yeah. to think about. Yeah, true. Things to ponder. Yeah. Uh, let's jump to the author to author section. This is where we take last week's reading and we connect it in any way that we want to, to this week's reading. Do you want me to start on this one? You said you had a hard time. Yeah, we yeah we talked a little bit about it before we started. And this one, thematically, which I totally agree with, what you what you were saying like i think there's a continuation here thematically but why don't you yeah why don't you start us off i my uh supposition my guess as to why you're struggling is because the author author here has written itself this just is the same poetry just translated into whitman's voice right like, like an american uh an american take to yeah to a degree i think it obviously some of the topics vary and stylistically it's extremely different but again that's how whitman makes it his own with sure. the voice with the imagery his rep repetitive style all of that but i think it's a thematic continuation in a very clear way and so the answer to how these authors would interact is they already are. And, you know, you could draw your own conclusions and compare contrast, but it's pretty much just, if you made last week's poetry collection, you just cranked the emotion up to the highest knob, turn it up to 11. Yeah. A lot of feelings. You put the feelings into it. You make it personal and American without, you know, really jamming the American stuff down your throat. But whereas like, you know, the Tang dynasty poets talking about a dude floating down a river, observing life while Whitman's talking about a guy standing on the Eastern East coast, sitting on, uh, sitting on the beach, observing life, doing his own sort of exploration, I guess there's, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of comparisons thematically between the, between the two. 